Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Trent Dimas graduated from the Columbia School of General Studies in 2002. He also worked for an ad agency in New York, graduated from law school, coached gymnastics at Yale, and now works as a fundraiser for the University of Colorado School of Medicine. But before doing all that, Trent won a gold medal in gymnastics at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain. Trent Dimas takes the gold! Olympic champion, Trent Dimas! But we're getting ahead of ourselves. For today's episode, as it's now Olympic season, we wanted to give you a glimpse into the world of an Olympic athlete. How one gets to that level of competition, what it's like to qualify, what it's like to actually win, and what comes after. Trent seemed like the perfect tour guide through all of this. So we were lucky enough to speak with him via phone in his hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, about his road to the Olympics. And it turns out it wasn't an easy one. It was a really tough one. And the reason why it was tough was because I did something that hadn't been done before. And that was kind of taking a, an unusual path toward um, toward the Games. And at that point, uh, which was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, kind of the standard protocol for people to go to the Olympic Games was they would train privately in high school. They would earn a scholarship. They would you know train and, and perform for four or five years gaining experience in the college system, and then after that, they would train for the Olympic Games. In the late 80s, I was uh, the number one recruit in the nation um, and uh, ended up choosing the University of Nebraska, which was one of the top programs in the U.S., followed my brother there, who was, uh, you know, I'd always had followed my brother because he was just, uh, you know, that's what little brothers do, and uh, it was great. It was a fantastic experience uh, to go to the University of Nebraska, and we were national champions that year. I was three-time All-American. But um, I also knew that I wanted to go to the Olympic Games, and I'm an unusually large gymnast, um, so my body structure really doesn't fit into the, what's the norm. What is the norm for, for for gymnasts? And so after my first year, I came back to the back to New Mexico, training with my private club coach, and we kind of sat down and took a look at what it was that I wanted to accomplish, and made a decision not to return to the University of Nebraska, which was very, very tough. Uh, nobody had left a scholarship, much less the best program in the country and a national championship program at that. So it was uh, widely seen as, as uh, just naive, uh, uh, just a poor move, but, uh, but it turned out to be the right move. So he's training, he's competing, he's also receiving funding. And gymnasts get paid based on their placement or rank among each other. So if you're number one in the country, you'll get paid a bit more than the athlete ranked number two and number three and so on. Now, here's the tricky thing about placement in gymnastics. If you have a bad day or you're dealing with an injury, you can very quickly drop from first to 10th to 20th and lose your funding. And one year prior to the Olympics, that happened to Trent. And um, I went from being number one to number 11. And at that time, the U.S. Gymnastics Federation only paid the top 10 athletes. And um, so I, I was out of funding. I had a year before the Olympics. I had a pretty severe injury, uh, rotator cuff tears in my shoulders, and um, it was just a really tough time. And I remember coming home one day, and I uh, went to the uh, mailbox, and you know, I pull out, you pull out your mail, and you're looking, you're know, like Bill, 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 and then I, I had this letter in there, and I thought, well, that's weird. And there was a baseball with two bats on it, and I thought, well. Well, that's strange. And so I open it up. I open the letter, and out falls a check. 
I pick up the check. The check was for five thousand dollars. I'm like, what? And so I read the letter because first you look at the check, and then you read the letter, and it said, uh, "It said, dear Trent, um, I saw you at the uh, U.S. gymnastic trials. I admired tenacity. Um, I, I learned that uh, you were you ran out of funding. I hope this will get you. I hope this will help you." Um, signed George George Steinbrenner. That would be former owner and manager of the New York Yankees, George Steinbrenner. And so it was a, it was a really neat kind of uh, experience to have. And then he and I became friends after the Olympics. And I think at one point he had said in the Times when he was talking about the Yankees that um, his best investment was uh, was a gymnast out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, named Trent Dimas. Despite what you, you see in the media or what you used to see in the media about him, he was a very kind and generous person uh, and in very unexpected unexpected ways. So with that bit of help from a Yankee, Trent was able to continue, and he was able to go to the Olympic trials. There are actually only two competitions that can qualify you for the Olympics. The U.S. Championships, now called the P&G Championships, and the Olympic trials. In 1992, around 70 male gymnasts competed in the U.S. Championships, and then from there, the top 18 moved on to the Olympic trials. And from there, six men earned a spot on the Olympic team. At trials, Trent bumped around in his placement after every routine. He started in seventh, then moved down to eighth, up to fifth, back up to sixth, and you get it. He was in sixth place going into the last rotation when someone else fell in their routine. So Trent moved from sixth to fifth. He was officially on the team. So getting to the Olympic Games... uh... It really starts, it starts at the Olympic trials and you make the team, you wake up the next morning. I, I remember very distinctly looking at my, at my, uh, bunkmate at the hotel and I said, was that a dream or did we really, did we really make the team? He said, we made it. Once you, uh, I mean, it's an exciting time to, to be on an Olympic team. You, they, they take you through processing for us. It was in, uh, well, the Olympic Games were in Barcelona, Spain, so it made sense that the processing of the U.S. Olympic Committee was on the East Coast in Tampa, Florida. You'd continue your training as best you possibly could. Um, you're, you're coming off a, a major high, so you're trying not to, you know, come down too far into a valley where it takes you too long to come back. So you're trying to just maintain your level of, uh, of athleticism. Uh, you, they give you these huge shopping carts and you go through, uh, these, uh, you know, this, uh, kind of a, um, I don't know, like a store and all the Olympic sponsors are just giving you, uh, their apparel from, Everything from socks and tennis shoes to dress shoes to sports coats and leather jackets. And it was interesting, you know, rings and watches and all of these things that kind of uh, identify that you are an Olympian. And uh, it, was, it was really neat. I remember this jacket that they, that they gave us, and it was a black leather jacket. And um, they sized it to you, and then they would send it to you later. And um, it is really neat because when you open up that jacket, and at that time I had no idea it would happen, but... Um, they put your your name, your sport, your year, and the medals that you won, along with the Olympiad, on the inside of the jacket. And so that's that's a little bit that's a little bit special. But um, that's kind of the beginning of the process. So opening ceremonies is one of the greatest experiences of an Olympian's kind of background in history. It is amazing. You are waiting outside of this arena, and sometimes you come from underneath, 
and into a tunnel. Sometimes you come over the top and into the arena. In this case, we came out of a tunnel and then kind of over a big kind of hill into the arena. And at that moment, when you walk into the arena and the crowd just, when they say the United States of America, and you come over the top of that and the crowd goes crazy and all, you know, it's pitch black and all you see are these light bulbs going off and flash cameras and you have this feeling just rush over you like, wow, I did it. I made it. I'm, I'm here. And uh, it just brings a sense of enormous joy and pleasure that all the years that you put in, you know, whatever it was for me, it was something like a half a billion seconds, I think is what I uh, whittled it down to uh, eight hours a day, six days a week over, you know, 17 years. And then there was additional years after that uh, in training for the next games. Um, but you really feel like, wow, I'm, I'm an Olympian and I did it. I made it. And it's, it's one of the greatest feelings watching the American flag and being uh, with your colleagues there and your contemporaries and just feeling like this is what the Olympic Games is about. Um, inter- interacting with some of the other athletes, and it's really a neat uh, place to be when people are thinking about sports, they're not thinking about politics, they're not thinking about war, they're thinking about um, let's all come together and, and, and do something great, and it's really a, an exercise in peace through sport and uh, something that I admire quite a bit. All right, so the opening ceremonies are over, and we're off. Now comes the Olympic competition. So, no pressure. Let me just take you back a couple of days. Um, I remember just completely freaking out that I made the Olympic team, um, and then I made it into finals. And that that means that you're the top eight in the world. They take the top eight. Uh, We'll go into finals. And by the luck of the draw, I uh, would compete seventh out of eight. And so I had probably four or five days before uh, finals, and I recall uh, staying up one night. I'd probably stay up to three or four o'clock in the morning thinking, wow, what, what if I could win a gold medal? What if I could do this? I mean, it, it really never even crossed my mind, ever, ever. And now I had this chance. And so uh, I finally talked myself out of it and said, well, you know, I'm just exhausted. I can't win a gold medal. And, and the next night I thought, well, okay, maybe not the gold but maybe the silver, and again, I stayed up 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and talked myself out of that, and the following night, I did it with the bronze. And I finally just said, you know what? I'm in finals. It's um, That's good enough. I'm just going to go out and do my best. He gets to the arena around 5 p.m. He and his teammates warm up. They go through all the routines, pommel horse, steel rings, vaults, parallel bars, and each event is taking about 45 minutes to an hour. Now, Trent isn't in the finals for these competitions. His event is the last event, the high bar. So he's waiting for about seven hours. Again, no pressure. I, I remember this so distinctly. Uh, Beth Ruyak, who was the um, NBC commentator at the time, uh, came into, she knocks on the door of the practice gym, which is underneath the arena. And she comes in and she's like, well, Trent, how are you feeling? I said, well, I, I'm... I'm pretty relaxed. I said, I'm a little nervous. I've been here forever. And she's like, oh, well, that's great. I just I just want to come in here and share a little bit of news with you. And I was like, oh, well, what is that? She's like, well, just wanted you to know that we've decided to make the entire show, the entire primetime NBC show back in the United States about you. And so go out there and do your best. <laughs> I'm, like, you, I'm like, are you kidding me? 
do I need more pressure? And um, so she leaves, and uh, Robert Cowan, who was head of the, uh, uh, he was in a top position with USA Gymnastics at that time, he was a Texan, and he he came in and knocked on the door, and he, he comes in and he said, hey, how you feeling? And I said, oh, I, I was feeling fine. I said, and Beth came in here and told me that, you know, they're going to be doing a primetime show back in the United States, and it's going to be about me. And he said, oh, don't, don't let any of that bother you. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, but I just wanted to let you know that, that Chris was fourth and, and Jair was, was uh, you know, fifth or sixth on the parallel bar, so you're our last hope for a medal. <laughs> like, you've got to be joking me. Uh, you know, and at that time, I was just such a quiet kid, um, you know, not really knowing much of the world and just really thinking, holy cow, how am I going to do this? Um, the thoughts that were truly going through my head were, you're going to make an embarrassment of yourself. You're going to embarrass your friends and your family and the people that are around you. And, um, it's not going to be good. Um, because it's just, it, the pressure begins to mount and it begins to scare you in a very substantial way. And, and, um, so you walk out to the arena, they finally called us to go out to the arena and it was, uh, I think it was just about midnight. So I competed just after midnight. In the way that Trent qualified for the finals, it turns out that he's going to go second to last. So there are six men going before him. First Japan goes, then Russia, then China. And as this continues, each gymnast gets better and the scores go up, setting the standard higher and higher. Then Andreas Wecker from Germany is up. He's the favorite in the high bar. He has a perfect routine, but when he dismounts, he takes a small step forward. So some points are deducted and he gets a 9.837. The new high score is set. Then Gregory Masutsin from Russia steps up. His routine is nearly flawless, but on his dismount, he takes a step backwards. He and Andreas are now tied for the event. So 9.837 is the score to beat. And right before Trent, Li Jing from China is up. Li Jing, who I believe was the world champion, he was definitely one of the, one of the best in the world from China, gets up on the high bar. And um, he's doing a perfect routine, and then he misses his he misses his release move and falls to the ground. And so he knows he can't win, so he just gets up on the high bar and he just does a dismount. That's it. But half of his routine isn't there, so the judges can't figure out like what to score him at because he's missing all the skills, and all those skills have particular points that add up to a ten, and then your mistakes get deducted from that. And so I'm standing on this podium waiting. Um, there are two things that happen. So there's a huge scoreboard that shows all the scores, and then there's a smaller scoreboard with your name on it, and there's a red light and a green light. Um, and when that green light goes on, you salute the judge, and you jump up on, on your event and begin. Well, the red light's on, and these guys can't figure out the score. So I'm up on this podium for probably five minutes, just thinking, oh, my God, I want this to be over. We want to remind you once again that Trent is just standing up there on the podium waiting to go. And the unfortunate thing is that as he waits, uh, it's a score for Li Jing, and it's a score that won't make any difference. It's inconsequential. He fell off the high bar. There's no way he's going to be a factor in the event, except as a factor in the fortunes of Trent Demas. It's just so much pressure. It's the kind of pressure um, I can liken it to this. Imagine um, you're driving home one night, and then all of a sudden, you know, the flashing red lights go on in the back. And, you, and you're getting pulled over. It's that immediate feeling of, ah, oh my God, 
what, what's going to happen. And then you combine that with taking your worst exam, the most difficult exam that maybe you're not, you don't feel all, all that prepared for. And it's that combination of that anxiety and the pressure and the immediacy of uh, surprise that you're like, okay, this is it. But imagine living that for five minutes. Um, it was, it was horrible. Um, and so uh, Li Jing ends up scoring like a 4.625. Trent accidentally swapped two of those numbers. Li Jing actually got 6.425, putting him in last place. So that kind of broke that cycle of scores that continue to go up. And all of a sudden, boom, you have somebody drop into the sixth or so, and then it's back up. The light turns green, and um, I could do really only the, the one thing I, I knew how to do best, which was just to you know, bow my head and, and be humble before God. And I said, you know, Lord Christ, I just give this to you, whatever the outcome might be. Um, just may you be glorified. And got up onto the high bar, and it was very unusual. Never has this ever happened to me before, where it did feel as though it was an out-of-body experience because I was literally talking to myself. I was going through these routines and uh, these different skills back and forth, and I had my big release. It was that double flip over the high bar. Um, you release on one side, you do two flips, and on the way down, you catch it. And I remember doing that, and I caught it. I thought, oh my gosh, I just caught it. Up over the bar. He caught it perfectly. I said, all right, I need to do these two more releases, and I caught them. Oh my goodness, he's absolutely right on. And I said, oh my gosh, it's going to come down to this dismount. And I did the triple somersault. And a lot of people don't do that anymore because there's so much speed and force um, and rotation that comes off of the high bar from doing a triple somersault that when you land, it's very difficult to land because um, you're just you're, you're spinning and then you have to stop it. And so I said, um, and, and the dismount for me of a triple somersault is like this. If I say one, two, three, open, that means that I've let go of the bar, I've done three flips, and the floor should be under me. Once it's reopen. As, as fast as I said that, that's as fast as it happens. And so I was, you know, I was just cranking up for this dismount and I let go and I said, once it's reopen, and I land. And I didn't move. And if you look back at the video, I just, you can read my mouth and I said, oh my God. Boy, my heart hasn't pounded this much since I was competing. This is unbelievable. Here he goes. Triple back flip. The landing is the key element here. One, two, three. Stop it! Trump And it wasn't necessarily that um, I thought I had won. It was just I knew that that was the best routine that I had ever done, ever, in practice, anywhere. And to do it at the Olympic Games uh, was, uh, you know, I, I really have to say that it wasn't of my own doing. It really was divine intervention. Because you can, you can hope and you can, you can uh, prepare and you can be strong and you can be competitive. But at the end, uh, a lot of things come together, and they're unexplainable. And this is one of those those circumstances where it was just way beyond what it was that I feel like I could have done on my own. And um, it was um, just spectacular. And, and to my coach from Albuquerque, this was the only time he was allowed to participate in the Olympic Games, was to be on the floor with me. And so he was just, and you know, him being an Albuquerque boy, he was jumping and hollering, and I and I jumped off the podium, literally arms and legs together, bear-hugged him, and uh, he just said, you won, you won, you won, and I said, not yet, not yet, not yet, because you never know what a judge is going to, going to, to say, 
about what he's going to do. And there was this huge scoreboard behind us, and it had the top two leaders, Andreas Becker and, and Gregory Masutin. And it was the old-style kind of uh, ticker-type uh, scoreboard that you could actually hear moving. And all of a sudden, you looked up, and you saw the two names just go, shunk, and they moved down. And I didn't have to see that my name was up there, but I knew that I had taken the first place. And to just think that, wow, I'm curtain, but there was still one more person. So I just, just at that moment, to think that I've moved into first, I have a medal, it's pretty spectacular. And um, I watched the next guy go, and he took his, he did his routine and did his dismount and took a hop and do, took another hop, and I knew that, that I had it. Nine, seven, eight, seven. Trent Demas takes the gold. Olympic champion Trent Demas alone on the victory platform. He's got it. It it was so unexpected. I was not even prepared in any other in any way, other than um, a few years earlier. We'd always play the national anthem before uh, major competitions, and I realized that nobody around me could could sing the national anthem, I, and I couldn't either. And I and I kind of dedicated myself to learning the national anthem just out of respect for my country and love for my country, and not knowing that I would have the opportunity to to you know to sing that on the podium was was amazing. So, he won gold, he kept training, when he didn't make the team for the 96 Olympics, he retired and felt a little lost. Like many athletes, you go into this abyss of, of, of just not knowing what, what it is that you're going to do with your life because you're the best in the world or one of the best in the world and you're used to people telling you that and then you go out into the real world and people are like, you're a dumb athlete. Um, and, and that's you know, sometimes what happens and you're confused in your own right. Uh, for me, I'd spent 20 years, over 20 years in a gym with all the same people. I wasn't uh, well-educated. I wasn't, I didn't have uh, the type of experiences. All my contemporaries had already been working almost for a decade. And uh, a friend of mine who worked for AT&T uh, spoke to a company who, at McCann Erickson uh, in New York, and they said, hey, we want you to give Trent uh, a deal for the next Olympic Games, and we want to you know, do like a marketing deal. And that person happened to come out to Colorado Springs and I met him and he said, well, yeah, you know, I could, I could, uh, we could do a deal with you or you could come out to New York and work for me. By the way, for those of you who may not have watched Mad Men or aren't particularly familiar with advertising, McCann Erickson is a huge advertising agency in New York. So with some helpful pushing from his wife, Trent moved to New York City and took the job. But there was something else he wanted to pursue in New York, school. Part of the, the thing for me was I had to be able to work and to go to school because there was no way for me to pay for it. And so I, I went to NYU first and met with somebody there and uh, kind of told them my story. And they just said, listen, there's no, we don't accept anybody late for any reason. You're out. You know, you could wait another year. And I said, okay. And I remember getting on the one nine and thinking to myself, what, I can't get in to NYU and now I'm going to Columbia? Are you, are you stupid? And it was it was depressing. It was depressing going up there. But I remember getting off at 116th Street and walking through those gates and just saying, oh, my God, if there was any opportunity for me to come here, this is where I want to be. 
this is where I, this is where I want to be. And, um, I had set an appointment with uh, somebody in the graduate school and, uh, I told him my whole story and he sat there and he listened to it and he goes, wow. He's like, but you're an undergraduate. We're, we're a graduate program. And he goes, and I was like, oh, I was really sorry about that. I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to introduce you to somebody over at, uh, in general studies. I think they might uh, be interested in someone just like you. And so he walked, he made a phone call. He walked me over there and it was just the greatest experience to, to be around people who really cared about somebody like me who wasn't well-educated, who had some interesting life experience and, you know, were welcoming. And they just said, here's what you need to do. And they set out a structure for me of, 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 on, the, on the process and they just said, follow it. And if you follow it, you know, we can't promise you anything, but if you do that, we think that there's a, a good, good possibility. And I was accepted after um, getting some letters of recommendation and, and getting some test scores and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was one of those watershed moments for, for an individual where you feel like, wow, um, not only do I get to attend this amazing school, but the people here really care. And they care about me as a person. It's something that was so special in my life that I'll never forget it and I'll always be grateful. Oh, and one of his recommendations to the School of General Studies was from Mr. George Steinbrenner, the man who once said the best investment he ever made was in a gymnast from New Mexico. As you watch the Olympics this year, keep an eye out for four Colombians who are competing. Katie Miley in swimming, Aquia Oben Akrofi in track, and Zinga Prescott in fencing, and Isadora Cerullo in rugby. And for a full list of all things Columbia in the Olympics, visit thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu slash Olympics. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.